So Father, our hearts are thrilled as we think about the wonders of the resurrection. Lord, as we think about you coming in power to save, the fact, Lord, that you in your mercy sent your Son to be our Savior and offer him to all who will believe is a great mystery. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Open up the mystery of amazing love to our souls today. With mercy and power, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The woman looked outside her window in horror as she saw her German shepherd violently shaking the neighbor's pet rabbit in its mouth. Out of horror, she grabbed a broom, went out there, and began to hit her German shepherd until finally he dropped the bunny, but the bunny was dead. The neighbor was gone. In panic, she thought, well, I, I've got to do something. So she took the rabbit and she went and washed it inside and took the hair dryer and dried the hair and combed it up and took it back to the neighbor's house and put it in the neighbor's cage right where that bunny was supposed to be. A couple hours later, the neighbor came home and there was the loudest scream you'd ever heard. The neighbor came running out, the neighbor with a German shepherd came running out, pretending not to know what's wrong, and said, well, what's wrong, what's wrong? And the neighbor was screaming and crying all at the same time and said, two days ago, our pet bunny died and we buried it, and now it's back. <laughs> I'm not sure that's a true story, but I like it anyway. How terrified we are when someone we think is dead is actually alive. Terrified, is that the right word? How about overjoyed? Well, the story of the resurrection can be found throughout the pages of the Bible, especially in the New Testament, but I want to draw your attention to Acts chapter 17. If you want to follow along, there's a pew Bible in front of you. Acts 17 is in the New Testament. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible, feel free just to take the one that is in the pew rack there and uh, keep that as your own. Acts chapter 17. This gives us the history of the growing church. And the apostles, who were individuals who lived with Christ, and then after the death and resurrection of Christ, continued to minister on the earth sharing the good news of the gospel. That's what the word gospel means. It simply means good news. And they were proclaiming the message of the resurrection. And that's what the apostle Paul was doing in the famous city called Athens. If you look at Acts 17, all the way down to verse 16, it says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, that tolerant city, that pluralistic society, filled with idols, given over to religion, but having no clue what was true. The Bible tells us that Paul was greatly distressed, verse 16, to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue, that's the Jewish house of worship. He'd be going 
like going to a church. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and God-fearing Greeks. Many Greeks became proselytes. They uh, turned to Judaism uh, away from their, their own heathen idols and gods. So Paul reasoned in the synagogue as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Everywhere Paul went, inside the meeting house, outside in the marketplace, his message was the same. It was a message about Jesus Christ. It's interesting that the word reasoned in verse 17 means to show logic. Anyone that thinks that Christianity is anti-intellectual doesn't know anything about Christianity. There's a lot in Christianity that is above reason, but nothing is against reason. It's hard for us to understand, but that's because we're finite and God is infinite and you can't squeeze the infinite into the finite. So there came, verse 18 tells us, a group of Epicureans and Stoic philosophers. Uh, the Epicureans are those who have the motto, enjoy life, and the Stoics have the motto, endure life. <laughs> the Epicureans are all about eating and feasting and being happy, and the Stoics are all about keeping things away and, and uh, living in Lent all of their life and, and abusing their body, thinking that somehow that will make them more spiritual. Both groups came and disputed with Paul. Some of them asked, what is this babbler saying? And others remarked, he seems to be talking about foreign gods. They said this because, notice this in verse 8, Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. That's the first thing I want you to see is that the message of the resurrection is good news. It's gospel news. It's the message that comes to us in our hour of need. Now, you might ask yourself, well, what is the message that Paul is actually proclaiming? Go back to the beginning of the chapter in verse 2, and we get a pretty good idea. Paul's message was customary, verse 2 says. That is, this was his common message. Most, most preachers have uh, five or ten sermons that they rely upon when they go and preach in other places. Uh, it's become a joke. Sometimes when I go to other countries, I'll have one sermon with me, and I preach that one sermon ten times, but it's in different places. Uh, so Paul had a go-to sermon. It was his customary habit to go into the synagogue and to preach the same message. Now, here he was in Thessalonica. This is a northern Greek city above Athens, but the message was the same. He reasoned with them. There's the the, the logic involved, reasoned with them from the Scriptures. That can only mean the Old Testament. That's the only Bible Paul had, the Holy Scriptures as we know them, the Old Covenant, the 39 books called the Old Testament. He used those Scriptures to reason and, notice this, verse 3, to explain and prove that the Messiah that the Jews were waiting for, had to suffer and then rise from the dead. And there's all kinds of scriptures he could have used. Maybe like Isaiah 53 that talks about God's servant, the Messiah, suffering 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was abused. He was afflicted. In his mistreatment, he didn't even look human anymore. And verses about the resurrection, like out of the book of Psalms, my body will not see corruption in the grave. He proved and explained and reasoned. And the message of the good news of Jesus Christ has all of that backed by the authority of God. Jesus constantly quoted from the Old Testament, lending his authority to it. And we have the authority of the Holy Scriptures before us. So he proved that and explained that Christ, although he came to set up a kingdom, first had to suffer. But he wouldn't stay in the grave. He would come out of the grave victorious, alive forevermore. And then Paul said this, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Now up to that point, most Jews would have embraced everything Paul said. But when he said Jesus fulfills these prophecies, Jesus is the Christ, that's where people got upset. But I like the fact that Paul points it out. It makes it abundantly clear. There aren't many messiahs, there's only one. Jesus called himself the messiah in John chapter 4. Speaking to the woman at the well, we know that the messiah is coming. When he comes, he'll change everything. Jesus said, you're looking at him. I, the one you are speaking to, I am. I am he. And he repeated by his miracles, by his messages, that he fulfilled all the prophecy of the Old Testament. In Luke 24, Jesus simply said, search the scriptures and see. Look at the Old Testament and notice, the scriptures speak of me. In the prophets, the Psalms, the portions of history, it's all about Christ. The Old Testament prepares us for the coming of Christ. The Gospels reveal that Christ has come, his life, his death, his resurrection. And then the epistles that flow out of that through the rest of the New Testament explain and prove and point to Jesus as the only one. You say, I wonder why Christianity is so exclusive. Because truth is narrow. And the Bible makes it clear there is no other way to be saved. There is no other Savior. There is no other name except the name of Christ. And on this day, among all days, we want to boldly proclaim this Jesus is Messiah. The evidence is overwhelming. I think to any objective mind who's willing to look at the facts without prejudice and to see all that was prophesied and then all fulfilled by Christ in such an amazing way, you can't even put a mathematical statistic as to the probability of all of that happening. And yet people still will not believe. Which shouldn't be surprising because men love darkness rather than light. And Jesus is the light, and when you come to the light, you're exposed. Paul said this, Jesus, I'm proclaiming to you, he's the one. 
Now there's a re reaction every time the gospel is preached. And notice this reaction, verse 4. Some of the Jews were persuaded. And they joined Paul and Silas. They believed the message. They embraced the message. As did a large number of God-fearing Greeks. And not a few prominent women. By the way, that's an interesting phrase that's repeated at least three times in this chapter. Prominent women. It means women of intellect. It means women of authority. And most likely civil power. Individuals who are involved in the government and leading the city. And prominent by means of, of wealth and influence. And some of those came to faith in Christ as well. But, verse 5, the Jews were jealous. The Jews were jealous. It was jealousy that motivated some Jews to send Jesus to the cross. They didn't like the fact that Christ had more popularity than they had gained over their years of teaching. The truth of the matter is, when Jesus healed and when Jesus loved and when Jesus forgave, that's something they couldn't do. And some people are jealous. And that's why they reject the Savior. Well, all of this stirred some great interest. And we read later on that because of this, uh, the individuals wanted to take Paul to the governing civil council of the city. It is actually called the Areopagus, verse 19. They took Paul and brought him to the meeting on Mars Hill, is what some translations will have, which is simply a rendering of uh, uh, this particular phrase. Areopagus speaks about the hill, and it speaks about the God who reigned on the hill. But it was a place where the city council met. And they brought Paul there because he was preaching a new message, and they wanted to hear something about this new message. These foreign gods. After all, they had a place down in the Agora, the marketplace, that had an, a, a special place for every idol. They had a little room, some kind of statue, a place to burn candles, whatever it might have been. And you can go there today in the ruins of Athens, walk through the Agora, and still see some of these statues. So they wanted to know if there was a new God that they needed to add to the list. These are strange ideas, verse 20. These are new ideas, verse 19. And we want to hear them. So Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, verse 22. And now the Apostle Paul, after telling many of the good news of Christ. By the way, what is this good news? Jesus is the Christ. He died for our sins so that we don't have to die. He lives to give us life. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The fact that I have received, I've declared unto you the message that I have received from the Lord Jesus. That he himself 
died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised the third day according to the scriptures. Paul has proof. Paul has evidence. Paul has the authority of the sacred writings behind everything that he is saying. The essence of the good news, the hope of the gospel is that God died for your sin. And when God takes sin away, it's gone. And that God put death to death in the person of Christ and when he kills something, it's dead. And that he conquered the grave and all who put their faith and trust in him will live forever. That's the good news. So now we go to this second message and I'll just summarize it briefly because it's a rather long section of scripture. But basically what Paul is saying is that God has made everyone in the world. And he can't be confined to a little idol temple, to a little table with a few candles and a statue. The God who made the world lives beyond anything made by man. In fact, in him we live and move and have our being. Paul starts his message with the mega thought that God is the creator of all things and in his environment we exist. In fact, he even quotes some of their own prophets like Erastus. We are his offspring. And like fish in the sea or birds in the air, every person that lives in this world lives in the environment of God because he made us and he's not very far from any one of us. And for a long time in patience, God overlooked sin. That's verse 30. But now he commands everyone to repent, which is a word that simply means turn away from your gods and trust Christ. Turn away from your sin and find forgiveness in him. Verse 31, and now he introduces the bad news of the gospel. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So think of it this way. The raising of Christ from the dead is a message of good news for there's hope and forgiveness and for those who believe life everlasting. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is bad news for those who aren't willing to embrace it. Bad news. I hate giving bad news. If you're a policeman, you hate being the one who has to knock on the door at two in the morning and tell a family that their child is dead because of an accident. That's horrible news. One of the things that maybe kept me away from the ministry more than anything else was the fact that I was going to have to deliver such bad news. But the thing that tops that is the good news. The good news is so great, the bad news can be eliminated. Did you notice the word proof is used again? In the early part of the chapter, Paul used the Old Testament to prove that the Messiah must suffer 
and rise from the dead and that Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies. There's proof in it. And now there is proof in the resurrection. If we had time, we could go to some of the greatest minds who have ever lived teaching in some of the most well-known institutions like Oxford who would show that when you look at the evidence there's no other explanation of an empty tomb except the victorious Christ. There's no other explanation. Think about all that went in to securing that tomb, including the Roman seal, and yet the tomb is empty. The proof of the resurrection tells us that God will punish sin. How do I know that? He punished his son on the cross who knew no sin if God will punish his sinless son for crimes that others committed and yet raised him from the dead showing that Jesus atoned for sin and now is accepted in the holy presence of the Heavenly Father that proves the resurrection proves that God will deal with your sin someday it was Mark Twain who said, it's not what I don't understand about the Bible that bothers me, it's what I do understand. And this is one of those things that bothers me. There's coming a day, and the resurrection proves it. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it is appointed unto man once to die, then after this judgment. Or in John chapter 5, don't be amazed at this because the time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Some unto the resurrection of life and some unto the resurrection of condemnation. By the way, if Jesus said he would suffer in Jerusalem, be killed and buried and three days later come out of the tomb alive. If he pulled that off, I tell you, my friend, everything else he said has got to be true. And he's the one who said, don't be amazed. A day of resurrection is coming for everyone. It's interesting when you look at Acts 17 that the resurrection to the second message gives us the three common responses that most people give when they hear the gospel message. The first response is the fact that some sneered. This is verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some sneered. They mocked. They ridiculed. That's for the anti-intellectual. That's ridiculous. That cannot be proven. It's rubbish. It's myth. It's fable. It's for weak minds and weak souls who need a crutch to get them through life. And on and on it goes. Have you heard them? Have you heard the people sneering? Maybe you're in that crowd who thinks this is an all a lot of rubbish. I think it's Richard Dawkins, one of the new atheists who several years ago had a bus that went around to different cities. And on this bus, there was a big sign that read something like this. There's probably no God, so enjoy life. Probably? 
You can't say there is no God. An honest person cannot say, I know for sure there is no God. So he said, probably there is no God. Enjoy life. Boy, that's a big risk. And what you don't realize is that to know God is to enjoy life because he's the maker of life. What they mean by enjoying life is get rid of your guilt. Don't think you're a sinner. There's no coming day of judgment. But if I'm going to be a true messenger, I've got to share with you the truth as it's found in the Word of God. Some sneered. There was a second group of people that said, we want to hear you again on this subject. That's also verse 32. Uh, now that could be honest interest and a, a desire to seek, to investigate further. And some of you are in that, that category. And I welcome that. I applaud that. I encourage it. In fact, God says, taste and see. Check it out. Examine the facts. And there are many who fit in this category who with bias went to the Bible to prove that it's wrong and came away believers because the evidence was so overwhelming. There's also another group in this second category called procrastinators. How many of you have a will? Don't raise your hand. How many of you have a will? To those of you who don't, why not? Are you going to die? Do you care about who you live your things to, leave your things to? Do you care about the money that will be taken away in court if you don't? Oh, yes, I believe in all those things. I, I, I plan to do it. I just haven't done it. I've done two wills, I think, but the third one had to be adjusted. It's still in the lawyer's office, and it's only been waiting for me to sign it for about two or three years. <laughs> so talk about a bad example of an illustration. I'm the one. Procrastination. Are you a procrastinator? Oh, you won't give me an honest answer. Let me ask your wife. Is he a procrastinator? <laughs> ask your spouse. Your best friend. This is something you don't want to put off because you never know. The third response is that some believed. Notice that word? Paul left the council, verse 34, a few became followers. Now, there was a large number early, earlier on in the chapter in Thessalonica, but in Athens, a few men became followers of Paul, and they believed. Underscore that word. That's the key word, because that's what makes the difference with this message. You hear it and sneer. You hear it and say, later, or you hear it and say, he is Lord. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead, and he is Lord. And you embrace it with your heart. Your mind, yes, because it's an intellectual message based on the facts, it can be reasoned, but with your heart, you believe and embrace. Romans chapter 10 has a wonderful portion of Scripture for us. Romans 
10, 9 and 10 that explains what this word believe is all about. It says, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is what? Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. For it's the heart that believes and you are justified or righteous and it's with the mouth that you make a confession. And the scripture tells us there's no difference between Jew or Gentile. There's no difference between man or woman, old or young, rich or poor. There's no difference among human beings. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call. But you've got to call on him. You've got to believe on him. And then the last verse, verse 13, everyone who calls, that means you. If you will call and believe, you will be saved. That's the message of the good news. And it's based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 34 said, a few men believed, and among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus. How about that? One of the leading individuals of the, of the city council believed. And if you go to Athens today, at the foot of the Acropolis is a restaurant called Dionysius. Now, I don't know if there's any connection, but in my mind, there always is. It just reminds me that when Paul preached there, one of the leading men of the city believed. And also a woman named Damaris, who probably was one of those prominent women and a number of others. Do you see how Christ is the watershed of humanity? Some believe, some sneer, some put it off. What category are you in? The greatest day in the Christian calendar is Easter because Jesus is alive. He accomplished what he set out to do. But you've got to believe. I had a friend who was an evangelist, much older than I, grew up in Alabama, traveled the South in the early 1900s preaching the gospel of Christ. And this evangelist heard that there was one African-American who was still alive, well over a hundred at that time, and he was the last slave to cross the ocean on a slave boat that was still living in Alabama. So my friend decided to go talk to this man, and he found him, a stately man, beautiful white hair and white beard, sitting in a rocker on the front porch in a warm Alabama morning. He came up and introduced himself, and after a little bit of small talk, the evangelist got down to business. This man, after all, named Cudjo Lewis, was over 100 years old. And so my friend said to him, may I ask you a question? Sure, he said. Are you a Christian? He said, yes. Now, when someone gives you a yes without any explanation, you realize that some people might even misunderstand and you want to probe a little further to see if they understand what it means to really be a Christian. So he asked him, uh, how do you know? And this man said, oh, white boy wants me to tell him how I know. 
He thought for a moment, looked around, picked up a little piece of string and pulled a handkerchief out of his pocket. And then for the next few minutes, tried to push the string through the handkerchief without saying a word. My friend watched him and was a bit confused. Then he looked up at my friend and said, can you push this string through this handkerchief? And he said, no, I can't. Kajil said, can the, the most powerful man in America, the President of the United States, can he take the string and push it through the handkerchief? My friend said, no. Kajil, with a big smile, said, I can. He got a needle and put the string through the needle and pushed the needle through the handkerchief and the string came with it. And then with tears filling his clear eyes, he looked up to heaven and said, Kudjo's the string. Jesus is the needle. And I'm going to heaven because I'm in Christ. My friend, there is no better explanation than that. Let's pray. Lord, I pray today for those who are here who have never yet trusted Christ. Maybe they've never heard. Maybe they've heard and rejected. Maybe they've heard and wondered and processed and debated and they're still somewhere in limbo without a decision either way. But I pray some will say today, I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and I call on him now confessing my sin and asking him to be my savior and knowing that the promise of God is true, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Maybe some will cry out right now, Lord, save me. And you, Father, through a miraculous work of your grace, will put us in Christ so we can go into heaven by your grace alone. Do that work in the souls of many. In Jesus' name, amen.